History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 96, Ocus the Second. Those numbers are getting up there. I'll be honest, I've got absolutely no idea how to celebrate episode 100. Originally, I'd hoped I'd time it just right to be very dramatic, but that didn't pan out. I'm sure I'll think of something. But that's not what we're here for today. Today, we are back to the narrative as last seen in episode 92. Hopefully you enjoyed a nice little break while I talked about religion. However, we've got to get this show on the road. It's time for the dramatic reign of our next king, and in my controversial opinion, one of our best. I recapped the reign of Artaxerxes II in episode 92. I won't dwell on it here, but instead I'll do a brief version so we can pick up where things left off. Episodes 91 and 92 both left us in year 361, with Prince Ochus on his way to end the Egyptian invasion of the Persian Empire's west coast over in Phoenicia. Simultaneously, a loyalist conspiracy brought down the great satraps' revolt in Anatolia, and the newly minted ruler of Hellespontine Phrygia, satrap Artabazus II, captured his own half-brother, delivering him to the royal court in chains. Even as Artabazus rode south, the court was in disarray. In the final years of Artaxerxes II's life, his succession plans collapsed. Spurred on by the jilted former satrap Tirabazus, Crown Prince Darius joined Tirabazus in an attempt to assassinate the king, leading to their joint execution along with all of Darius's sons. Meanwhile, Prince Ochus was actively conspiring with his half-sister, who was also his new mother-in-law, Atossa, to pave his own way to the throne. First, by driving another half-brother into depression and suicide, then Ochus employed Tirabazus' son Arpates to assassinate one final half-brother. With all three of the king's preferred sons dead, Ochus was the only popular contender left. And what Artaxerxes II wanted no longer mattered. By the time Ochus was dispatched to the west, Artaxerxes was on his deathbed. Depending on exactly which source you believe, he was either 77, an unsourced claim by Plutarch, or possibly 95, according to Danon, who was a contemporary but is also known to have repeated a lot of other ahistorical claims about Persia. Either way, the king was old, dying, and had suffered greatly in his final years as he lost three sons in quick succession. 
leaving the son he considered most dangerous in control of the Empire by default. Plutarch says that Artaxerxes II died almost immediately after Ochus left. Ochus walks out the gate, Arpates assassinates Prince Arsimes, Artaxerxes gets the news, and the shock kills him. However, this is not reflected in Babylonian records. Ochus arrived in the Levant in 360, at least according to Diodorus, which aligns with the other records of the great satrap's revolt. Babylonian records don't transition regnal years until at least November of 359, and other records point to an even later death, all the way in September of 358. And either could make perfect sense. There are possibilities here. One is just that Plutarch has the date wrong by a few months, either a genuine mistake, or just an attempt to make the story more dramatic. Second is that the Babylonians are known to have kept using a deceased king's regnal dates until the new king was formally crowned, meaning that Artaxerxes II died, but since his successor de jour was off in Phoenicia, the Babylonian calendar kept using Artaxerxes II as their benchmark. Either way, Artaxerxes II was certainly dead by September of 358, and Ochus had returned to Pasargadae for his formal coronation. King Artaxerxes II had been the great king, king of Persia, king of this earth far and wide, and king of kings. Cheshayathia Cheshayathia Nam, for a staggering 43 years. He was the longest reigning Achaemenid monarch of them all, and carried the empire through one storm after another. But the king is dead, so long live the king. Prince Ochus followed in the footsteps of his father and grandfather. Just as Darius II had entered the sanctuary of Anahita as Prince Ochus, so did his grandson. But Ochus II emerged into the wide paradise gardens of Cyrus the Great's palace as King Artaxerxes III. It was a name with overwhelmingly positive implications. Sure, both previous Artaxerxes had faced some trouble at the outset, but they overcame those issues and kept the empire together through hard times. Our new king was under no delusions that he had battles ahead, but as a true prince of the Achaemenid house, he was prepared to face them. King Artaxerxes III took power with a very full to-do list. He had come to power legitimately, but only in a very technical sense, and he still had 112 half-brothers alive, who could all potentially challenge his right to the throne. As with Darius II, once you break out of the designated line of succession, it's open season. We have no idea what the full age range of these competitors might have been. Artaxerxes III himself seems to have been in his late 20s, maybe early 30s at this point, but since we don't know when his father stopped having kids, the 112 sons of Artaxerxes II 
could span anywhere from small children all the way to 50 or 60 years old. On top of that, the Western Empire was still in chaos. Anatolia was reeling from almost a decade of major rebellion. The Egyptians had only just been repelled in Phoenicia. Egypt itself was just getting past a succession crisis, and was still independent. Greece, still clinging to that gray zone between independence and vassalage to the great king under the king's peace, was tense in the aftermath of the final Theban-Spartan War, and the gradual growth of the Second Athenian League had brought Athens into conflict with Odrysian Thrace. And all of this occurred intermittently right along the Persian border at the Hellespont. And all that is without knowing much about the Eastern Empire as per usual. But this time, a collection of leather sheets with Aramaic writing known as the Khalili Collection of Aramaic Documents from Achaemenid Bactria, or ADAB for short, does shed some light on the Northeast. For now, we can suffice to say that the steppe nomads were getting aggressive and significant resources were being spent to secure Bactria. The sheer turmoil of the empire at the end of the 360s and beginning of the 350s even proved difficult for ancient authors to keep track of. The Roman author Justin, in his Epitome of Pompeius Trogus, a much earlier Hellenistic historian, attributes the defeat of the Egyptians to Artaxerxes III's actual reign, likely due to confusion between two separate Artaxerxes in a culture that doesn't use regnal numbers, both being involved in the same event. The West was in dire need of a fresh set of royal eyes, no matter how you slice it. Freshly returned to the fold, Cappadocia and Cilicia had no satrap. Everywhere needed aid to rebuild from their recent wars, and recent history taught Artaxerxes III one crucial lesson. The Western governors could not be trusted with independent armies or Keranos-level authority. In the preceding 80 years... A rebel in Anatolia had challenged the king at least once every ten years, and those revolts had become more frequent and more disastrous to the detriment of the empire as a whole. Distractions in the north had repeatedly taken Persian eyes off the real prize in Egypt. The Greeks were pacified. When and if they violated the king's peace, it could be handled accordingly. But until that happened, there was no need for a large military presence in Anatolia. On top of that, all Artaxerxes III had to do when he first visited Phoenicia in his father's dying years was look around to see the consequences of rebellious governors. From Evagoras of Salome to various Levantine cities quietly accepting Egyptian suzerainty, rebels had left the west side of the empire unstable. More than any other contender, Cyrus the Younger's revolt had upset the balance of power. In the vacuum he created, Egypt and Cyprus left 
Persian hands. Sparta invaded, and those wars cascaded into a series of struggles for power. Not in Artaxerxes III's empire. Soon after his coronation, the new king took swift action to prevent further catastrophe. He began with a massive purge of the royal family, executing all of his brothers and at least most of their sons. No man who could claim direct male lineage from Artaxerxes II would be allowed to challenge their new monarch, and the best way to accomplish that was to simply get rid of all of them. I've commented before on how the sheer size of the royal family meant that princes and princesses couldn't possibly have close ties with all of their siblings or even their father, and Artaxerxes III exemplified that in the darkest way possible. That said, men who could claim descent from Artaxerxes II through their mothers were spared, and several of them would go on to be very important. With his throne secure, Artaxerxes III announced a dramatic policy change to solidify his territory, banning the western satraps from maintaining their own armies outside of a small, personal guard. No more mass mercenary armies under any pretext. If some local tribe like the Pisidians rebelled, Artaxerxes himself would decide whether or not to send royal armies or authorize funds to hire mercenaries, but experience had proven that the damage done by little rebellions was nothing compared to the threat of a satrap with tens of thousands of Greek and Thracian hirelings. There was some initial outcry from the affected governors, but with a young king, already battle-tested and willing to prove his martial capacity as a ruler, they complied. This compliance was probably aided by the ascension of not one but three new satraps to replace Datames, men who would be loyal to Artaxerxes III as his appointees, rather than pre-existing claims on their land. First came Mazaios, as the new satrap of Cilicia. The brief attempt to merge the invaluable ports and coin mints of the small plain in southern Anatolia with Cappadocia, under Datames, was an unmitigated disaster. Artaxerxes III elevated Cilicia to a full satrapy ruled by his nephew by way of an unnamed sister and the late great Tissaphernes. Cappadocia itself was split in two. The northern coastal region of Bithynia had always been an administrative division within the satrapy, but Artaxerxes III turned it into a full satrapy under Bas, a local petty king whose family had held power there for generations. Presumably, the Bithynian kings played an important role in bringing Cappadocian loyalists back to the fold after Datames' rebellion was made public. Southern Cappadocia became the only Cappadocia, and passed into the hands of Ariamnes, who Diodorus says was a son of Datames. This is a bit confusing, since we've never seen Ariamnes before, and his father was a rebel. Once again, there are three possibilities. 
We know that several of Daedemi's family members betrayed him during the Great Revolt, including a son called Susanus by Cornelius Nepos. Ariamnes might just have been another loyalist in his father's camp. Alternatively, Ariamnes and Susanus may actually be the same person. Ariamnes is a conventional name, while Susanus simply means a man of Susa. It wouldn't be the first time that Greco-Roman sources, especially much later sources, interpreted an epithet as a name. Finally, Diodorus might just be incorrect. Ariamnes is named as a son of Datames in a fragmentary section of Diodorus's Library of History, which provides the genealogy of the Cappadocian kings all the way back to pre-Persian times and includes major figures like Cyrus the Great. The timeline does not match up with other sources, and several figures are probably inserted to elevate the Cappadocian monarchs of Diodorus's period. I actually think the second option, with Ariamnes and Susanus being the same man, is most likely. Datames may have been inserted into a broken chain of Cappadocian rulers to mend the gap, but rewarding his son for staying loyal by giving him the southern half of his father's province would be standard procedure for the Achaemenids. Susanus sounds more like an epithet than a name, and it's even exactly what happened with Artabazus taking over his brother's satrapy in Hellespontine Phrygia. There was just one problem. If just one of the now seven satraps of Anatolia secretly refused to disband his armies, that governor would suddenly be holding all the cards with nobody available to challenge him in event of a rebellion. And, wouldn't you know, one of them did exactly that. It wasn't Mausolus of Caria, who had briefly flirted with rebellion at the outset of the Great Revolt. And it wasn't Mazaios, who had a relatively strong claim to the royal throne as a first-generation descendant of Artaxerxes II, it wasn't even Ariamnes, the son of the rebel Datames. No. It was Artabazus II of Hellespontine Phrygia, brother, it is true, of the rebel Ariobarzanes, and younger son of the would-be conqueror of Egypt. Artabazus's exact reason for going from commander of the loyalist armies to rebel in less than three years are not clear. However, we can probably guess that he was outraged that after loyal service, he was being stripped of what he saw as a satrap's right to garrison his own territory. He also probably thought that Artaxerxes III was reneging on his father's promises. Artabazus did not turn to violence immediately. He just refused to disband his mercenaries while trying to negotiate with the new king for a year or two. But Artaxerxes III would not be swayed, and in 356 BCE, negotiations turned to open warfare with Artabazus striking the first blow. He didn't have a massive mercenary force, but since he still had mercenaries at all, he outnumbered his neighbors. 
The levies and Greek mercenaries of Hellespontine Phrygia were able to wreak havoc on Lydia and Bithynia with impunity for a time. But Artabazus knew that the king would send funds and forces to face him eventually. So he did what any sensible Persian rebel would do, and he called Athens. Athens, in particular, was the easy choice at the time, because the Athenian fleet was already nearby. At the outset of Artaxerxes III's reign, the Aegean Sea was resting on the edge of a knife. We mostly left non-Persian politics behind in 362 BCE to focus on the satraps' revolt, but it had been a tumultuous few years. After Thebes' disastrous Pyrrhic victory at the Battle of Mantinea, their forces and politics were thrown into chaos as the Spartans pressed their advantage, consolidating a revitalized Peloponnesian League to challenge Thebes and its own Boeotian League. And of course, the Second Athenian League was still there holding a firm anti-Theban stance. For all intents and purposes, Theban hegemony was broken, but not officially. They still had Artaxerxes II's endorsement to lord over the other Greeks and significant influence in the Amphictyonic Council, a multilateral body that governed the sacred city of Delphi. However, the end of Theban power left a vacuum with two contenders hoping to fill it. Sparta had their fill of hegemonic power politics, but Athens was considering making a second attempt. There was also a new competitor preparing to enter the battle royale of ancient Greece. The young and ambitious King Philip II of Macedon. Following his elder brother's death in battle against Illyrian tribes on Macedon's western border, the 23-year-old Philip was appointed regent for his infant nephew, Amyntas. That was in 359. Philip had no interest in handing power back to Amyntas when he came of age. Instead, the regent just declared himself king. More than two decades ahead of his nephew, Philip just pushed Amyntas off to the side and allowed him to grow up as a prince instead of a king. The first few years of Philip's reign aren't actually all that important to us, but they do provide a useful framework for getting through the rest of regional politics, which will eventually lead us back to Artabazus. Philip's first order of business was finishing his brother's campaign against the Illyrians, which he did in 357 by aiding the small northern Greek kingdom of Epirus, in a massive battle with nearly 7,000 Illyrian dead. Not total, dead. It's a lot easier to count dead bodies. So if that figure is even close to accurate, we have to assume this was a battle on the scale of some of the largest we've seen. Then, Philip turned his attention to a Thracian army that was harassing his eastern frontier, and his allies in the Chalcidikian League, those three little finger-like peninsulas on the northeastern coast of modern Greece. 
This campaign was massively successful. The Macedonian army pushed all the way to the Odrysian city of Crenides, well past the Athos Peninsula by 356. Philip renamed that city in his own honor, Philippi, which it bears to this day. Officially, Philip had promised to return captured Greek cities to the various alliances and leagues they belonged to before the most recent Thracian attacks. However, the Macedonian king refused, instead trying to leverage his new possessions for political gain with the rest of Greece. Last time we saw Odrysian Thrace, King Cotis was embroiled in a war with the Second Athenian League over Greek colony cities. In the intervening years, much had changed for Thrace as well. Cotis died in 360, possibly in a border skirmish with Macedon, and his successor was immediately challenged. Thrace was split between two competing factions, Kersobleptos, son of Cotis in the south and west, versus Amadokos in the north. And within four years of his accession, Kersobleptos lost a huge swath of territory to Macedon. Meanwhile, Athens refused to let up on its claims and forced Kersobleptos to surrender the whole Thracian Chersonese in 357, probably working in an alliance with Amadokos to pressure his rival king. Athenian militarism and de facto dominance over the recently conquered cities alarmed other members of the Second League. Specifically, the islands of Chios, Kos, and Rhodes, along with Byzantium. So began the Athenian Social War. Social wars should be very familiar if you've read or listened to podcasts about Rome. They are wars between a domineering city-state and their supposed independent allies. The Athenian social war kicked off in 357, and Athens dispatched a fleet under Chares and Chabrias, veteran commanders of their recent wars against Thebes, to besiege the cities of these four wealthy trading centers that wanted to leave. With Athens now engaged in a multi-front war far from home, Philip II offered them Amphipolis, their former colony with tons of gold mines, in exchange for the valuable port city of Pydna, right on Macedon's border. Athens agreed, and Philip occupied Pydna, but refused to give up Amphipolis, leaving Athens in even more dire straits than before negotiating with Philip. This will be a running theme. And that is what brings us back to Artabazus. With the Athenian fleet actively patrolling the Hellespont and besieging islands off the Ionian coast, but in desperate need of funds, the Athenians happily answered the rebel satraps' call for mercenary aid. Chares took his half of the Athenian fleet and joined the Persian rebels to fight Artaxerxes III. In his absence, his co-commander Chabrias was killed while besieging Chios. 
They were soon joined by unlikely allies in the form of Theban soldiers, sent for similar reasons. To rebuild their polis's wealth and make use of military buildup that suddenly had no use at home. Artaxerxes III did not enter the fray in person. Instead, he dispatched additional funds and soldiers under the command of the other Anatolian satraps so that they could end this rebellion for him. The new king already had military prominence from his own successes as a prince. Now was time to prove that Artaxerxes III was able to govern and command all at once. This was also the perfect stress test for his new system. If the rebellion could be dealt with by sending royal troops as needed instead of leaving mercenary armies in the west, it would prove the veracity of the commands that set off Artabazus in the first place. The arrival of Athenian mercenaries and the issue of the social war also provided a test for the other crucial element of Artaxerxes' new western strategy, the king's peace. Not only was an Athenian fleet taking up arms against the king of kings, but they were also in the region to enforce their rule over unwilling Greek cities. Both were violations of the treaty. So the new king tested the waters of the Aegean with a strongly worded letter, sent to the Athenian assembly, reminding them of their obligations. He commanded Athens to put a stop to their rogue general in Anatolia. You may be surprised that this worked. The mere threat of war against Persia once again was enough to cow the Greeks. In 355, the Second Athenian League relinquished its claim on Rhodes, Chios, Kos, and Byzantium, and ordered Chares to come home. That still left Artabazus with 5,000 Thebans under the command of the formidable general Pomenes, Philip II's former guardian, pederastic lover, and military tutor. They too were dealt with easily enough. Artaxerxes III also reminded Thebes of the king's peace, but recognized their financial reason for assisting the rebels. He offered a large bribe for the Thebans to get out of his territory and return to their rightful position as quiet vassals of the Persian Empire. Pomenes too left right away. Though greatly weakened, Artabazus kept up the fight. At this point, it was a battle for his life. If he could not force Artaxerxes back to the negotiating table at spear point, he would follow in his brother's footsteps all the way to a sharpened stake outside the gates of Babylon. And he was not completely out of Greek allies. Allies Artaxerxes couldn't simply compel out of the war with an old treaty. Enter Memnon and Mentor of Rhodes, the satrap's brothers-in-law by way of his marriage to an unnamed sister of the Rhodian mercenaries. As members of Artabazus' family, they had every right to independently call on their own military contacts and support the rebellion outside the confines of the king's peace. They were not official representatives of their home city, and thus not bound by its interstate agreements. With their support, 
Artabazus clung to life for another two years. But loyalist forces gradually chipped away at Hellespontine Phrygia. By 353, Artaxerxes III's men were approaching Daskaleon, and Artabazus had a choice to make. He could make a valiant last stand and die, either in battle or in one of the myriad pitiful ways you can succumb to a siege. Or he could run for his life. Artabazus chose the latter. He, his wife, their son, Pharnabazus III, their daughters, Barsine and Artacama, and Memnon of Rhodes all gathered their movable wealth and fled to the warm embrace of Philip II in Macedonia. Mentor, on the other hand, was left to deal with Artaxerxes III, which he did by surrendering, saying he had only been supporting his family as any good man would, and pointing to his own battle record to argue that he could be of great service to the Persian Empire. Mentor was not the first mercenary to try this. Just like Clearchus and Xenophon had done 50 years earlier, Mentor pointed to Persia's struggle in Egypt and offered his experience. Unlike his father, Artaxerxes III accepted the offer and made Mentor of Rhodes an admiral in the Persian Aegean fleet. The exact fate of Hellespontine Phrygia in the aftermath of this revolt is very unclear. Despite being a fixture of Western imperial politics dating all the way back to Xerxes' invasion of Greece, Phrygia basically vanishes from our narrative for the next decade. When it does reappear, there seem to be two distinct men identified as satrap. However, one of those is Pharnabazus III, which is a story for another time. He is obviously not here at the moment, so I think the best explanation for who is ruling Daskaleon at the beginning of 352 is probably Arsites, a Persian nobleman only known for his role as satrap of this province. The flight of Artabazus and the arrival of Arsites marks the end to continuous rule by the oldest satrapal dynasty in the empire, the Pharnakids. They trace their lineage back to Pharnakis, brother of Darius the Great. After serving for the entirety of imperial history, this cadet branch of the Achaemenid house has up and fled to Macedon in disgrace. However, it also seems like Arsites did not take over Hellespontine Phrygia as Artabazus had left it. Somewhere between 353 and 334 BCE, another Anatolian satrapy called Greater Phrygia emerged under the rule of a satrap called Atizues. Apparently, it was portions of inland Anatolia dominated by the Phrygian people. Greater Phrygia seems to have been carved off bits of Hellespontine Phrygia, Lydia, Caria, Bithynia, and Cappadocia that formed a whole new administrative division. We don't know when that happened, but Artabazus's revolt is the only time that really makes sense. 
Artaxerxes III was still ironing out his administrative reforms, and there's nothing in the intervening decades to really prompt that transition. It's also pretty safe to say that neither of his successors had time to redraw the map. It seems the final piece of the Anatolian puzzle for Artaxerxes was carving out an inland region to pull those local forces out of the hands of the wealthier coastal and mineral-rich satrapies. In the course of just 10 years between 360 and 350, Anatolia went from having five major satrapies to eight of them, with Armenia alone retaining its original territory. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Before we wrap up, I actually have one more, mostly distinct topic to cover in this episode. While his neighbors were all focused on Artabazus's revolt, Satrap Mausolus, vassal king of Caria, was dealing with an entirely separate set of problems. Rhodes and Kos were both right off the Carian coastline, though officially independent according to the king's peace. So when the Athenian social war escalated, the fighting was right on Mausolus' border. Shortly after the war, the Athenian orator Demosthenes accused Mausolus of inciting the conflict by pushing the islands to resist Athens. The obvious problem with that is, 
regardless of what Mausolus may or may not have said to the Rhodian government, Athens had no right to enforce their own rule over other members of the Second League, both according to the King's Peace and the League's own charter. Mausolus may have provoked Rhodes and Kos into withdrawing from the League in favor of Carrion protection, but neither was equipped to take offensive action against Athens, nor did they. Athens violated its own treaties to besiege them. Whether or not Mausolus did interfere before the war started is also just unclear. We only have the rhetoric of Demosthenes' speeches before the Athenian assembly as a source, and they are blatant warhawk propaganda. Demosthenes and several of his contemporaries, like Isocrates, frequently accused the Carian monarchy of duplicity, either against Athens or Persia, and there is never external evidence for it. The one thing that may work in the orator's favor here is that Rhodes underwent a shift in government, transitioning from a democratic assembly in the Athenian model to a Caria-aligned council of oligarchs. The thing is, that was also standard procedure in Greek politics. You go to war with Athens, you abandon democracy. And it's not clear how or when Rhodes became an oligarchy, just that it was before the end of the social war in 355. A first century BC Roman architect named Vitruvius does reference a pro-democracy uprising after Mausolus's death, but if he's correct, then it was also short-lived because other accounts reference the Rhodian oligarchs later on. That could possibly imply that the Democratic Party in Rhodes was just unpopular at this point. The one thing that is certain is that Mausolus provided financial support for Rhodes and Chios against Athens during the war. Of course, being radically Athenian, Demosthenes interpreted that as a slight against Athens. But let's think about it from Mausolus's perspective as a vassal king and satrap of the Persians. Athens was in violation of the king's peace and the assurances made to Persia in their own league's charter. Their general Chares was actively supporting a rebellion in Hellespontine Phrygia. Of course Mausolus threw his support behind Athens' opponents. It was literally his job. The presence of the Athenian fleet may also have set off a minor Ionian revolt. Again, at some point in his tenure, either during the Great Satraps Revolt or the Athenian Social War, Mausolus went to war against several Greek cities. It's a lot of the usual candidates, Miletus, Cnidos, Salatmos again. Notably, Miletus was traditionally Lydian territory, but after this point it became Carian. Given the politics of the time and the fact that Satrap Atophrodates was otherwise engaged up north, trouble in these Greek cities naturally fell to Mausolus, who conveniently absorbed their tribute into his own economy rather than giving them back, 
It should also be noted that Mausolus himself may not have had all that much involvement in any of this. His sister wife, Artemisia II, is credited with taking over Latmos at some point, and just around the time Artabazus fled to Macedon, Mausolus died of natural causes, leaving Artemisia as the queen of Caria and the first woman we know of to hold the rank of satrap. Often called Artemisia II to distinguish her from the Greek Tirana Artemisia, who commanded Xerxes' navy during the invasion of Greece, the new queen oversaw the completion of Mausolus's grandiose tomb, the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus. According to legend, his remains were never actually interred there. Instead, Artemisia mixed his ashes into her wine for years, so that they would never part from one another. Again, according to legend. But I will deal with Artemisia in a couple episodes' time, as her rule as queen will serve as a convenient bridge between the end of this episode in 353 and the next big events in 351. However, before we get there, for the first time in a Caymanid history, I can say we have important events and historical records from the Eastern Empire to include in our narrative. So next time, we are off to Bactria. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia.